But who are the sabirin? The one who says, I'm doing sabr? Who are the sabirin? Who are truly those who are sabirin? Allah says, الَّذِينَ Those people who, إِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ When the difficulty strikes them, إِذَا إِذَا Right at that time, when أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ Both the words أَصَابَتْهُمْ and مُصِيبَةٌ are from the root letters, صَاد وَوْبَ صَاد وَوْبَ إِصَابَة is to reach the mark, to hit the target, to get where something is supposed to get. To land where something is supposed to land. So for example, imagine a person shoots an arrow, throws an arrow right at the bull's eye. This is what? Isaba. Musiba is that which strikes. That which comes and hits where it is supposed to hit. That which hits the target. The bull's eye. What do we know as musiba as? A disaster. A calamity. But what do we learn from the word musiba itself? That any difficulty that hits you was meant to hit you. It didn't come on you by chance. For example, if a person ends up in a car accident, they say, what was the other person thinking? What was the driver thinking? Why weren't they driving carefully? Why weren't they looking at the side? Why did they go straight through the intersection? Why weren't they careful when they were taking a left turn? They should have been careful. And you say that, if they hadn't done that, I would have been fine. If they were more careful, I would be perfectly fine. But you know what? Whether they were careful or not, you were going to be struck by that calamity. That calamity was meant to come to you, and it did come to you. This is the fact of life. In a hadith also we learn, that know that whatever strikes you, was never meant to miss you. And whatever missed you, was never meant to strike you. Whatever strikes you, was never meant to miss you. And whatever misses you, was never meant to strike you. Whether good or bad. So, الَّذِينَ The sabirin are those who, as soon as a calamity, a problem, a disaster hits them, what's their instant reaction? قَالُوا They say. What do they say? Ouch! What's their response? What are the first words that come out of their mouth? إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ Indeed, we belong to Allah and to Him we are going to return. What does the statement mean? إِنَّا indeed we لِلَّهِ for Allah Meaning, we belong to Allah. Lamb over here of لِلَّهِ This is of mulk, of possession. Allah owns us. Allah owns us. We belong to Him. When you own something, can you do whatever you want to do with it? You have a pen. Can you use it? Yeah. Can you give it away? Yeah. Can you put it in your drawer and forget about it? Yeah. Are you at fault? No. You're not at fault. Why? Because it's your property. You can use it. You can break it. You can lose the cap and let the pen dry. What do you say? My pen. I can do whatever I want. Who are you to criticize? We belong to Allah. And when a person realizes this, I belong to Allah, Allah owns me, literally Allah owns me, then what does it mean? He can do whatever He wants to do with me. He can make me happy, He can make me cry, He can make me hungry, He can give me the feeling of contentment, of fulfillment, He can give something to me, He can take something from me, because I belong to Him. Inna lillah, we belong to Allah. So in this statement, is the acceptance 
acceptance of the decision of the decree of Allah. And when a person accepts, when a person submits, then Allah gives him contentment. Allah gives him peace in his heart. Allah makes him calm down in situations where he could be screaming and wailing and crying uncontrollably. But Allah gives him comfort at that point. Inna lillah, we belong to Allah. And not just that, that we belong to Allah. But also, inna, and indeed we ilayhi to him, meaning to Allah. Raji'oon, once we return. Raji'oon is the plural of raji'. From the root letters, raji'im, ayn, ruju'. Ruju' is to return. So we're also going back to Allah. Meaning, eventually we're going to die. And we're going back to Allah for hisab. And Allah will judge us. And He will recompense us. Either He will reward us or He will punish us. Depending on whatever He decides for us. What does the statement mean? وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ In this is hope. Hope of what? Reward from Allah. Hope of reward from Allah. When? Where? In the hereafter. We belong to Him. He can do whatever He wants. I accept it. And you know what? I'm going back to Him. So He is going to give me something better. He is going to reward me for this. وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ So this statement is very comprehensive. It's very deep. In this is acceptance. In this is rida. In this is happiness. Submission. And in this is hope. Expectation of reward from Allah as well. قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ When do they say this? When do they say this statement? Right at the time when disaster strikes. Just as it was mentioned yesterday, that sabr is what? At the time when disaster strikes you. Your first reaction, that is what matters. So the person who submits instantly, the one who expects reward from Allah instantly, then Allah says, وَبَشِّرِ الصَّابِرِينَ Give them good news that they will have reward insha'Allah in the hereafter. What do we learn in these two verses? We learn very important lessons. That first of all, every servant of Allah, every servant is tested in this life. And you know what? The prophets of Allah were tested the most. You want to look at any test? Any kind of problem that people suffer from, look at the Prophets of Allah and you will find that. You know, see, somebody suffering from physical illness for years and years and not getting better, Ayyub salam suffered for 18 years. I'm not saying 18 days. 18 years. You want to see someone who suffered the loss of a child? Look at Yaqub salam. His son Yusuf, the most beloved child to him, was stolen away from him. He lost him. And eventually he met him when Yusuf salam was an adult. After years and years and years later. You want to see someone whose parents were lost? The Prophet ﷺ. He grew up as an orphan. He grew up as an orphan. You want to see someone who was abused? Sexually abused. Even physically abused by your family. Yusuf ﷺ. His brothers abused him. They threw him in a ditch. People picked him up and sold him as a slave. He lived the life of a slave. And then the woman, she sexually abused him. She forced him to do haram with her. But he refused. He stayed away. He did not surrender. He did not submit over there. He stayed firm. And then you know what happened? He was sent to jail. An innocent person sent to jail. For how many years? Bidr or Sinin. 
at least seven to ten. Many, many years he stayed in the prison. Even more than that. And then eventually he came out. Eventually things changed. The prophets of Allah suffered great pain. They suffered every kind of pain, every kind of test. And if you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, all that is mentioned over here, khawf. Of course he suffered from khawf. In Makkah, he didn't know what was going to happen the next day. Jur, hunger. Remember the battle of Ahzab? A man came to the Prophet ﷺ, lifted up his shirt and showed him a rock that he had tied to his stomach, saying that, I'm so hungry, please do something about it. The Prophet ﷺ lifted up his shirt and he had two rocks tied to his stomach. Hunger. Khawf. Waljur. Wanaqsim min al-amwal. The Prophet ﷺ in Makkah, he was perfectly fine. His wife was the richest woman you can say. The most successful businesswoman. And he managed all of her business, all of her property. You can imagine how wealthy he was. But what happened very soon? In Medina, people did not even have enough oil to light a lamp. If they had oil, they would drink it. They didn't have enough to even light a lamp. نَقْصَ مِنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَنفُسِ The Prophet ﷺ, he lost all of his sons in his life. All of his sons. He lost his companions, his friends, even when he was alive. His uncle, his uncle Hamza, عنه, he lost him. His wife, he lost. He lost many people in his life. وَالْأَنفُسِ وَالْثَمَرَاتِ That also they suffered from. Every type of test the Prophet ﷺ suffered. So the fact is that every person will suffer in his life. Tests are a part of life. The question is why? Does Allah not like us? What wrong did we commit that Allah would put us through these hardships? The thing is that if a person does not suffer difficulty, he will not reap any fruit at the end. He will not get reward at the end. Think about it. Anything you want to achieve in this world, anything, don't you have to suffer for it? You do. If a person wants to win in a competition, let's say it is some sports competition, how much does he practice? How much and when? You know, sometimes I'm amazed at how these sportsmen, they're playing out in the open when it's so hot and sometimes when it's raining. When it's raining and they're playing. There are people who are playing on ice. They're falling. They could fracture their bones, dislocate their back or whatever. They take that risk. They suffer the pain and they go and play. Why? Because the rewards are worth it. It's a very commonly quoted phrase. No pain, no gain. But it's also very true. So in life we suffer not because Allah hates us. No, never think like that. Not necessarily because Allah is upset with us. But simply because we are His property. He owns us. And He can do whatever He wants. And you know what? He's very generous. You suffer, you're patient, you turn to Him, He will reward you with what you cannot even imagine. On the Day of Judgment we learned that people who suffered a lot in the world, how quickly they will enter Jannah, how quickly their hisab will be done and they will enter Jannah. And people will wish that they also had suffered difficulty in this life so that they could enter Jannah easily. A person who suffers difficulty in this life and he's patient and he expects reward from Allah, inshaAllah, his time in the grave and his time on the Day of Judgment will go much easily. 
will be much better compared to the rest of the people. And in Jannah, inshaAllah, inshaAllah, his status will be very high. This is why Allah says, وَبَشِّرُ الصَّابِرِينَ Then we also learn in this ayah that people react differently when it comes to difficulties. And mainly there are two types of people. There are two types of reactions. Some people, they are patient, sabir. And there are other people who become upset, who become angry. The people who become patient, who accept the decree of Allah, who submit to Him, who turn to Him seeking His help, then Allah becomes happy with him. And the person who becomes upset, the person who becomes angry, why me, why again, why this, then for him is also anger. In a hadith we learn that man radiya falahu rida. The one who becomes happy, then for him is happiness. The one who becomes satisfied with the decree of Allah, then Allah will also be satisfied with him. Allah will also be happy with him. وَمَنْ سَخَطَ And the one who becomes angry, فَلَهُ سَخَطْ Then for him is also anger, meaning Allah will also be angry with him. So you get how you behave. Now, when it comes to difficult situations, people can react in many different ways. The first reaction could be of sabr, of patience. When it comes to sabr, remember that sabr at the time of difficulty is wajib, it is mandatory. You have to be patient. As a believer, sabr is required of you. It's not an option. You don't have the option of either being patient or being impatient. No, you have to have sabr. Why? Because it's so much emphasized in the Qur'an and the sunnah. We learn that when the Prophet ﷺ's son, Ibrahim, he died, the Prophet ﷺ was crying. You can imagine anybody. If they lose a child, an infant, you think they're not going to cry? Of course they're going to cry. So he was crying. And the Sahaba said, you also cry? Because they thought crying was not okay. They said, you also cry? He said, yeah. The heart does feel the pain. The eyes weep. You can't control your crying, your tears. However, nothing that upsets my Lord will come out of this mouth. Sabr. It's wajib. It's mandatory. I do feel the sadness. I feel the pain. I feel the loss. I'm sad. However, I will not say what Allah does not like at this time. I will not anger Allah through my words, through my reaction, through my behavior. Sabr is mandatory. Another reaction, the second type of reaction could be of ar-rida, meaning being satisfied, being content with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this satisfaction, this contentment with the decree of Allah, this is sunnah, meaning this is the way of the Prophet sallallahu this is also something that's very important. You might say, how is that possible that a person, you know, he's radi with it, he's okay with it, he's content with the decision of Allah. This is a level above sabr. Sabr is that a person, you know, he feels sad, he's controlling himself, he's striving to control his tongue. But rida is like, a person is like, okay, Ya Allah, you decreed, I accept it. So first is sabr, then is rida, and rida is sunnah. This was the way of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would be content, happy, okay with the decision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you might see this, that there are some people when something happens, you know, they're trying to be patient, they're crying, they can't control themselves, and they're trying, they are being patient. They're finding it hard, but they are being patient. But there is another person who, yeah, he's sad, but it's almost as though he's okay with it. 
It's almost as though he's accepted it. So Ridha is a level above. Third type of reaction could be shukr, gratitude, gratefulness. Gratefulness for what? For the test that Allah sent a person's way. How? How can you be happy, be grateful that Allah thank you so much for testing me this way? How is that possible? Who could do that? Yes, some people can do that. It doesn't mean that we ask for trouble, we ask for difficulties, we say, oh Allah, test me. No. We should seek Allah's protection against difficulties, against trials, because trials sometimes can be so severe that they can shake up a person's iman. Now, why be grateful over the calamity, over the disaster, the difficulty? For two reasons. First of all, because of the realization that it could have been much worse. For example, a person, let's say they had an accident and they lost a child. It could have been much worse. Even you could have died. Perhaps the entire family could have died. You know, every time something wrong happens, people remind you, Alhamdulillah, it wasn't that bad. It could have been much worse. So when you remember what is greater, what is more worse, then what happens? You're like grateful. You're grateful that Alhamdulillah, only this much happened. So one reason to be grateful. Another reason to be grateful, because you're expecting reward from Allah for that. You're hoping that inshallah, because of this great test, Allah will reward me. So this feeling brings about gratitude in you. That Alhamdulillah, Allah is testing me, inshallah, He will reward me. So this makes a person grateful. Once there was a woman who was suffering a lot. And she wasn't displaying any impatience, any sadness. And people were like, what's wrong with you? Do you have a heart of stone? I mean, what's the deal with you? How come you're so patient? She said, إِنَّ حَلَاوَةَ أَجْرِهَا أَنْسَتْنِي مَرَارَةَ صَبْرِهَا That the sweetness of the reward of what I'm suffering from has made me forget the bitterness of this difficulty, of this patience. That when I think about the reward, I forget about the pain. When I think about the future, Jannah, then I forget about what I'm suffering from right now. And if you think about it, you know, there's something very amazing. In the Qur'an, if you reflect on all of the Makki surahs, Makki surahs, those surahs that were revealed before the Hijrah, before the Hijrah, the Sahaba, the Prophet ﷺ, everybody was suffering a lot, a lot of persecution. It was unbelievable. You know about what Bilal anhu suffered. How he was tortured. How he was made to lie down on the burning sand. And then heavy hot stones were placed on his stomach, on his chest, all on top of him without any barrier in between. And he was abused, tortured, literally tortured. There was a slave girl who was tortured so much that she became blind. She lost her eyesight. Allahu A'lam what kind of torture she must have experienced. You know people, they go crazy. They get psychologically affected because of the torture that they go through. So imagine, in Makkah, this is the kind of torture that the people were suffering from. And the surahs that were revealed, what do they talk about? Jannah. Jannah. Look at Surah Al-Rahman. It's a Makki surah. Look at Jannah that is mentioned. Look at Surah Al-Qamar. Look at the 30 juz. Jannah is described in so much detail from the clothes to the fruits, to the trees, to the shades, to the couches, to the jewelry, 
to the goblets, to the cups, to the drinks. Everything is mentioned. Look at Surah Al-Insan, Surah Al-Dahab. It's full of the description of Jannah. Why? Because in times of difficulty, what makes you forget the pain is the hope of reward. So that should make you grateful. A fourth reaction, another type of reaction that a person could have at a time of difficulty is sakhat, anger, displeasure, frustration at the decree of Allah. And this, my dear friends, is haram. We are not allowed to display displeasure, to display anger at the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the time of difficulty. This is something that does not behoove a believer. It does not suit him or her. And in fact, displaying sakhat, displaying anger at the time of difficulty, it is actually one of the major sins. It is of the major sins. The Prophet ﷺ said, this is a hadith in Bukhari, that laysa minna, he is not one of us. He is not of us. Who? Man darab al-khudud, the one who strikes his cheeks. Wa shakkal and he tears apart his clothes. Wa da'a wal-jahiliyya, and he calls with the call of jahiliyya, the call of ignorance, you know, saying things that, that people who don't have faith in the hereafter say. Saying things that people who don't have faith in God say. So such a person is not one of us. So displaying anger at the time of difficulty is something that does not suit a believer. And then we see in these verses that at the time of difficulty, what should we say? Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Indeed, O oh Allah, we belong to you and to you we are going to return. We belong to Allah and to Him we will return. And we learn from the sunnah that a person who says this at the time of difficulty and he also says, Allahumma ajirni fi musibati wa akhlif li khayram minha. That, O oh Allah, reward me for this problem that I'm suffering and replace it with something better. What I have lost, replace that with something better. A person who says that Allah will replace him with something that is better. And there's a very beautiful incident about Um Salama radhiallahu anha. Um Salama radhiallahu anha, she migrated from Makkah to Medina with her husband Abu Salama. Both of them were believers. And you can imagine the close relationship that they must have. That the father is known as Abu Salama and the mother is known as Um Salama. I mean they share a common name as well, right? Imagine the love, the bonding, the close relationship that they must have had. And her husband died. Imagine how sad she must have been. They just came to a new place, all the family is back home, and now her husband dies, she's basically on her own. And the Prophet ﷺ came to visit her, to offer his condolences. And he said to her that, make dua that Allahumma ajidni fi musibati wa akhli fi khayrun minha. Replace, you know, my loss with something that is better. So Um Salama, she said that I thought, who could be better than Abu Salama? Who? No one could be better than him. He was a perfect husband. He was a perfect friend, the perfect companion. No one could be better than him. And you know what happened after some time? Guess who proposed her? The Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ proposed her. She became of the Ummul Mu'mineen, the mother of the believers. Imagine, a person who is patient at the time of difficulty and trusts Allah. Ya Allah, yes, I've had this loss, but I trust you. You give me something that is better. You make me satisfied. You make me content. You give me happiness. You give me peace. Allah will give him. Allah will give him something. 
Allah will not leave him alone. Look at Ibrahim السلام, He lost his family. His father didn't accept. People were going to kill him. They intended to kill him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a wife like Sarah. And children like Ismail, Ishaq. This is a great gift of Allah for the one who is patient. Such people, Allah says, Ula'ika, those people who, those who are patient at the time of difficulty, alayhim, upon them are salawatum mir rabbihim. Salawat. Upon them are salawat from their Lord. Especially from their Lord. What are salawat? Salawat is the plural of salat. Salat. And what does the word salat mean? Prayer. We perform the salat, we pray to Allah. And we also say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. Salli. Send salat on Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We also say, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The word salat is used for prayer. It's also used for blessings. And it also means praise. Thana. What else does it mean? What's the third meaning? Praise. Thana. To praise someone. To mention their good traits. And when a person, when a human being says salat, it has a different meaning. When Allah sends salat, it has a different meaning. When the angel sends salat, it's a different meaning. So over here, salat is from who? Allah. So when Allah sends salat on someone, what does it mean? That Allah is praising him. Allah is praising him. And that Allah will bless him. Allah will send his blessings on him. So people who are patient at the time of difficulty, on them are salawatum mir rabbihim. In other words, Allah praises them in the company of the angels. And Allah will send his blessings on them. Imagine, if you're suffering and somebody remembers you, how do you feel? All of a sudden you feel so good. If they remember me, they called me, they sent me an email, I didn't come to school, I was feeling ill, and they remembered me, they dropped off food in my house, you feel so good, it's as though your half of pain has gone. Half of your difficulty is gone. Now imagine, a person who is patient at the time of difficulty, who remembers him? Allah remembers him. So, أُولَٰئِكَ عَلَيْهِمْ صَلَوَاتٌ مِّن رَبِّهِمْ in other words, their status, their position is instantly exalted in the sight of Allah. Instantly. And not just salawat, wa rahmah, and also mercy. What does it mean by this mercy? That Allah will rectify their situation. Allah will improve their condition. Wa ulaika and those humul muhtadun. They are the ones who are rightly guided. Muhtadun is from hadalya, meaning they are the ones who are rightly guided to the right way. They are the ones who are behaving correctly in that time of difficulty. You know when something difficult happens, everybody is giving you different things to do. Somebody says, do this. Another person says, no, don't do that, do this instead. You're like, what am I supposed to do? So how is a person rightly guided in that situation? That he turns to Allah, he submits to Him, he accepts His decree, he relies on Allah, he trusts on Him. Such people are rightly guided. This ayah shows to us about the great reward of patience. Salawat mir rabbihim wa rahmah. And this ayah also shows that those people who are patient at the time of difficulty, they're the ones who are doing the right thing. Those who are not patient at the time of difficulty, they're not doing the right thing. Let's listen to the recitation of these verses. Yeah. 
Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions an example of patience and the reward for that patience. And what is that? إِنَّ الصَّفَا وَالْمَرْوَةَ Indeed the Safa and Marwa. They are min شَعَائِرِ اللَّهِ Of the symbols of Allah. فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ أَوْ اِعْتَمَرَ فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَطَّوَّفَ بِهِمَا So whoever goes for Hajj or Umrah, there's no harm if he does tawaf of the Safa and Marwa. What are the Safa and Marwa? Safa and Marwa both are two mountains. Safa is also known as Jabal Abi Qais. And Marwa is also known as Qu'ay Qa'an. There are the two other names of Safa and Marwa. And these are two mountains that are on the eastern side of the Kaaba. So they are in Mecca. And we know that when we go for Umrah, when we go for Hajj, then part of Umrah and Hajj is what? That after Tawaf you have to do Sa'i between the two mountains. You have to go from Safa to Marwa, Marwa to Safa. How many times? Seven times. And the men are actually supposed to run for a part of that walk. Isn't it so? Why do we do that? Who do we remember at that time? Whose footsteps are we going in? Of Hajrah. Hajr. The mother of Ismail. What's her story? We learn that Ibrahim was told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to leave Ismail and his mother where? In Mecca, in the barren valley of Mecca. And you know what? No birds were there. If there are any birds somewhere, that means there's water, there's food, or there's people. There were no birds over there. So they came with some water and some food, but eventually they ran out of that water, they ran out of that food. Ibrahim had to leave, by the way. He had to leave the mother and son in the middle of the desert. Imagine sleeping there. No house, nothing. No people. We would probably die out of a heart attack immediately. But look at how strong that mother was. That when she ran out of her water, she ran out of her food, and her infant, her baby was hungry, because obviously if she hadn't had anything, she couldn't produce any milk. When she wasn't producing any milk, her child was hungry. And when he was hungry and thirsty, he was crying. So she wanted to provide for her child. She wanted to give him something so that he stops crying. So you know what she did? She ran on top of Marwa, the mountain, to see if there were any people... Any sight, any sign of any human life, any person, anything that she could find, maybe even water, so that she could go there and get something to give to her child, so that they could survive in that heat, in that desert. She couldn't see anything. She ran back to Safa, and then again, Safa Marwa. She did that several times, staying at the top of the mountains for a while, looking around everywhere. Perhaps I can see something, perhaps I can see someone, and she found nothing. And all of a sudden, when she went back to her child, what did she see? A spring of water. Water gushing out of the earth. And that water is still gushing out till today. Zam, zam. Imagine. Allah did not leave her. At that time, she did not go on cursing her husband. You left me here. What kind of religion, what kind of job do you have that you don't care about me? You don't care about the life of your child? You're putting our lives at risk? I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to leave you. Leave me alone. She didn't do that. She wasn't angry that, Ya Allah, why me? Why this? Why this difficulty? Please give us water to drink. You are the king of the heavens and the earth. You own the treasures of all the waters. Give me something to drink. Give me something to eat. Allah sent man and salwa and bani Israel. Do you think he could not send it on her? Of course he could. But he was testing her. Not because she was sinful. Not because Allah hated her. 
Not because Allah wanted bad for her, but because the reward that she was going to get for that suffering was great. It was a lot. And look at the reward that Allah gave. Zamzam water came out. That became her property. It was hers. And you know what happened? There were people who eventually came by and they asked her permission, can we stay here and have access to this water? She said, yeah, but it's still mine. And then Makkah was populated. They had a family, they had people to live with. Ismail grew over there. You know, he got married and like this, eventually Muhammad came. And you know what? Any person who goes for Hajj, any person who goes for Umrah, has to make that run exact same way as Hajr did to remember her striving, her patience. Look at the reward that Allah gave to her. The sari, the run that she had to do, it really shows her strength, her trust in her Lord, her willpower, her sabr, her firmness. That she didn't give up. You know, if you go for sari, it is difficult. You take so many breaks in the middle. You know, you have water fountains where you stop and you have a cool drink. Or you can rest. And you know what? You can rent a wheelchair and you can sit on it and somebody else will push in. You have a roof on top of you. You have cool marble floors beneath your feet. And even the mountain is sealed such that even if you go on top of it, your feet don't hurt. It's very easy for us. Yet, it is so difficult. Imagine the difficulty that she went through. She was patient. She didn't give up. She trusted her Lord. She trusted her Lord. And she knew that if this is decreed for me, there has to be some benefit. There has to be some wisdom. And Allah rewarded her. She is an example of patience, an example of sabr, an example of tawakkul ala Allah. So Allah says, إِنَّ الصَّفَا marwa." Indeed, the Safa and Marwa, these two mountains, what are they? مِنْ شَعَائِرِ اللَّهِ They're of the Sha'air of Allah. Sha'air is the plural of Sha'ira. Sheen, Ain, Ra. Sha'ur, what does Sha'ur mean? To realize. Sha'ira, literally, it's something that is through which something is known. So in other words, it's a symbol. It's a sign. You get to know about something through it. Sha'air, refers to the rituals or the places where certain rituals are performed that are the symbols of religion. If you see a person praying salah, it symbolizes that they are a believer. They follow Islam. They are a Muslim. If you see a person saying, Assalamu alaikum, you know that they are Muslim. If you see a woman who's dressed up properly, she's wearing the hijab, you know that she's a Muslim. So sha'ir, symbols. So what are sha'ir? They are the rituals of the deen, which almost symbolize this deen. They symbolize the religion. And also they are the very apparent, the very obvious rituals. Very obvious acts of worship. They're not hidden, they're not secret, they're obvious. So what's the first thing I told you? Symbolize religion. Secondly, they're very obvious. And thirdly, they're also very great. They're major rituals. It's not like, you know, saying subhanAllah just like that, but it's a major ritual. Something that symbolizes the deen. And remember that worship acts, worship rituals, there are two types. Some are khafiya, meaning they're hidden, they're secret, meaning it's a secret between you and your Lord. Nobody else knows about it. But other acts are very obvious. Very obvious. So for example... If you always pray at your home, your school fellows, your teachers, your whoever, they don't know how you pray, if you pray, they don't know about it. It's a secret between who? You and your Lord. Only Allah knows how you do it and what you do. But other things are more obvious. For example, 
when you wear hijab and you go out, it's obvious that you cover. You can't hide that good deed. Likewise, when a person goes for hajj, he goes to Muzdalifah, he goes to Mina, he does tawaf. Can you hide that good deed? You can't. Can you do it in secret? No, you can't. It's very public. It's a public act of worship. It's a symbol of religion. So Safa and Marwa, they are of the Sha'air of Allah. It doesn't mean that the two mountains are the Sha'air, but the worship ritual that is performed over there is of the Sha'air. So what is the ritual that we do there? Of Sa'i. Going between the two mountains seven times. فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ So whoever performs hajj of the house. Hajja. Hajj. Hajim jim literally means to intend. To aim at something. And hajj is the journey that a person takes with the intention of performing certain rituals at certain times, at certain places. Hajj is not like, yeah, you know what, we'll go and see what happens. No, no. When you go out of your house, when you leave, you know, when you reach the place, you have to wear the ihram, especially for hajj. And even for Umrah, you have to wear the ihram. And then you have to say the talbiyah. And when you go there, you can't just go and rest and have a good time. No, you have to be at a certain time, do certain things. So, there's intention behind it. So this is why hajj is called hajj. So whoever does the hajj of al-bayt, which bayt is this? Baytullah, the house of Allah, meaning the Kaaba. Oh, or i'tamara. I'tamara, ain mim ra. Umrah. Hajj is a major pilgrimage and Umrah is a minor pilgrimage. Hajj is only done in the months of Hajj, at the time of Hajj, and Umrah can be performed at any time of the year. And Umrah literally means a ziyarah, to visit. Umrah literally means a ziyarah, to pay a visit somewhere, and technically it is to visit the house of Allah in order to perform the rituals of Umrah. They're less than the rituals of Hajj. So any person who goes to perform hajj or umrah, Allah says, فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِ There's no sin on him. Junah means sin. There's no sin on him. On that, يَطَّوَّفَ بِهِمَا That he performs tawaf of them too. Of what two? Of these two mountains, Safa and Marwa. And bihima means between them two. It doesn't mean around them two, but between the two that he goes from one mount to the other seven times. There's no harm on him if he does sari. Between the two. وَمَنْ تَطَوَّعَ خَيْرًا And whoever does voluntary good. تَطَوَّعَ طَوَّعَ It means to voluntarily do something good. So whoever does خَيْرًا good. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرٌ عَلِيمٌ Then indeed Allah is shakir. He is appreciative and He is alim. Shakir is one who appreciates. شِينَ كَافْرَ Now tell me. Shukr. Isn't it something that we are supposed to do as human beings? As the recipients of blessings? We are grateful because Allah has given us blessings. Why is Allah grateful? He doesn't need any blessings. He is one who is ghani. He is one who gives. So why is he shakir? What it means by shakir in respect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that he appreciates the good deeds of a person. Just imagine the greatness and the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the one who gives us in the first place. And he's the one who shows us what to do. And he's the one who gives us the opportunity to do something good. And then when we do it, he appreciates us. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرْ Indeed, Allah is very appreciative. And he's alim, he knows very well about all what you're doing. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرٌ عَلِيمٌ What's the purpose of mentioning these two 
names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Shaykh and Alim. Why these two? Because when a person knows that Allah appreciates and that He knows whatever I do, then He's confident that whatever I'm doing is worth something. If you're doing something for the sake of someone who never thanks you, do you want to do it? No. If you're doing something and you have an idea that perhaps they'll never find out that you're doing it, would you want to do it? No. You say they're never going to find out. They're not going to bother. They never say thank you. You're not going to do it. You feel as if your effort will be wasted. But when you know that Allah appreciates the good deeds of a person, and He knows the good deeds of a person, then you know what? You want to do even more. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرٌ عَلِيمٌ What do we learn in this verse? We learn about the fact that Suri, the run, the walk between Safa and Marwa, is a rukun. Meaning it is a pillar, it is a major part of what Hajj and Umrah. Because both are mentioned over here. In this ayah when Allah says there is no harm, there is no sin on a person who does tawaf between the two, it doesn't mean that sari is an option. No, it's not an option. It is mandatory. And this is very clear from the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, which we learned in Musnad Ahmad. The Prophet ﷺ said, إِسْعَوْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَثَبَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ السَّعِي do sari because Allah has decreed this on you, you have to do it. In another hadith in Bukhari, we learn that a person who performs hajj and umrah, his hajj, his umrah is not complete unless and until he does the sari. So now the question is, why does Allah say there's no harm on him if he does sari? What does it mean by no harm? This is because the Muslims at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they had certain doubts about doing sari. They weren't sure if they were supposed to do it or not. Earlier we learned, tawaf was mentioned. Ibrahim was told that clean the house. Why? So that people can come and do tawaf over here. But sari was not mentioned, right? So some people thought, we're not supposed to do sari. Because if we were supposed to do it, Allah would have mentioned it very clearly. So then Allah revealed this verse, making it clear to the people that no, you also have to do sari. Another reason that is given is, that the mushrikeen, they used to do sari. They would go between Safa and Marwa seven times. So the Muslims, they thought, this is what we used to do before we accepted Islam. This is something that mushrikeen do. Are we supposed to do it as well? Would we not be imitating them if we do it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, you're not imitating them. You were doing this because Allah is telling you to do it. And why is Allah telling you to do it? Because your mother did it. Hajar did it. And you should remember her sacrifice, her efforts. And when you leave this place, the haram, you should leave with the same feelings that now you will sacrifice for the sake of Allah. You will stay strong. No matter what difficulties you're suffering, you will endure. And then another reason is that there were certain idols that the mushrikeen had placed at Safa and Marwa. They're known as Isaf and Naila. There were these idols that they had placed over there. And when they would go between Safa and Marwa, they would go up to those idols and they would touch them and you know, seek blessings through them. And you would wonder why were the idols over there? Because you know that in Makkah still the mushrikeen had power. And it was much later in the life of the Prophet ﷺ that Makkah was conquered. And when Makkah was conquered, then all the idols were destroyed. But until then, the idols were there. So the Muslims were concerned. When we go for hajj, when we go for umrah, the idols are there. How can we worship Allah there? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, you don't care about the idols. But you care about the sari. You care about Safa and Marwa. You care about hajr. So that's why you have to do it. And then we also learn in this ayah 
That whoever does voluntarily any good, then Allah is very appreciative and He's knowing of your efforts. What does it show? That any good deed that a person does, it's beneficial for who? For himself. When you do good, you do it for yourself. In ahsantum, ahsantum li anfusikum. When you do good, you do good to yourselves. And especially when a person goes for umrah, for hajj, at that time, he should really excel in doing good. One good after the other. Why? Because you're going there for ibadah. So increase in your good deeds as much as you want. You have the option. And whoever does more, he will find Allah very rewarding, very appreciated. Because there's not even the weight of an atom that Allah does not know about. So if you've done a very small act of kindness, Allah knows about that too. I just saw a video recently in which this brother, he was sharing about how he saw a house that was made up of small, small bricks. And small bricks, they made an entire house, a big house, came together from what? Small bricks. So likewise, we can have great deeds on the Day of Judgment that have accumulated how? By the performance of small, small deeds. So don't neglect any. Don't leave out any good deed. When you go for this week, focus on doing, first of all, patience, accepting the decree of Allah, saying, إِنَّ اللَّهِ وَإِنَّ إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ And secondly, what are you going to do? Focus on doing the little, little good deeds that we neglect. So inshallah, before we go, help out the sisters in, in what? In putting the chairs and desks away. So even if you have the time to put one chair away, quickly do that. Let's listen to the recitation. Inna as-safa wal-marwata min sha'airillah Faman hajjal bayta aw i'tamara fala junaha alayhi an yattawwafa bihima وَمَن تَطَوَّعَ خَيْرًا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرٌ عَلِيمٌ